Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Laura Lynch, and you're listening to What on Earth? Uh, One of those lovely sounds of summer, a river rolling by, inviting you to jump into the cool water. But that river can also, at times, become a threat. The water overcame us on early Wednesday morning. We had a crew of about 50 people there uh, assisting putting up the dams, and the water rose and overcame the dams, and we had to call it. The water has risen uh, well beyond anybody's imagination, and uh, we did what we could. All too often, doing what you can isn't enough. In the first half of this year, high water and historic flooding have translated to evacuation orders and alerts right across the country. The steady, heavy rain over the weekend has caused flooding in parts of Alberta. The entire Grand River watershed saw anywhere from uh, 80 to 100 millimeters of rainfall, which is pretty substantial at this time of year. Soon the Albany River will melt and flood into the Cree community of Kosheshawan. Almost 200 families are in evacuation order this morning. In fact, flooding is the most costly natural hazard in Canada, both in terms of dollars and lives. And under climate change, it will only get worse. But there is a solution. This week, we explore managed retreat, moving people out of their homes, away from coastlines and waterfronts, before rising waters overwhelm the defenses we've built. Now, as the waters rise, so do the costs, emotional and financial, of living on the edge, so to speak. Thomas Little has certainly paid the price. The dream home he bought 27 years ago sits just mere meters from the banks of the Gatineau River. But the nightmare started back in 2017. That's when floodwaters poured onto his property and into his house. And it happened again last year. We have reached Thomas Little at home. Hello. Hi. Thomas, can you tell me what you are looking at right now? You're at home. What do you see? Right now I'm looking out my back window and I see a beautiful river flowing down. I'm only literally 14-minute drive from Parliament Hill. And in my backyard, I see trees and river. And I don't see the city at all. It's quite a little paradise in in this area, though. Except that um, it wasn't a paradise back in 2017. Can you tell me what it looked like looking out your window then during the flood? If I look out the same window, all I would see was a wall of sandbags. That's all I would see was sandbags. Literally just piles and piles of about 20,000 sandbags. Did the water breach the sandbags? In 2019, no, but in 2017, the water got up to about 17 feet high. Uh, the water itself, my wall was about nine feet high. And the, it was a rainy, windy day, and the wind and the rain and the, and the water itself the, all failed. And uh, my whole basement was totally flooded in about four feet of water. I was absolutely devastated as seeing CDs uh, floating around. Uh, it was just brokenhearted. I was just totally brokenhearted and, and tired because uh, I had been laying sandbags for three weeks. 
So I was exhausted, no sleep. I had no hydro, I had no heat. It was raining, it was cold. It was just a, a, a nightmare. You know, I, I don't know any other way to describe it. I'm so sorry you, you had to go through that. At any point, did you say, I, I have to leave? I have to get out of here? I have to move? Yeah, uh, many times, many, many times. But unfortunately, in that situation, this is my retirement fund, so to speak. I couldn't get rid of it, I could, and I couldn't afford to walk away. And then 2019, it happens again. Um, did that prompt you any more? Were there options that you were offered from the Quebec government for, in, for funds? For well, the Quebec government offered me $200,000 to walk away from my house, which is to me was an insult. Uh, you know, properties on rivers are worth a little bit more than they're not on rivers. But I live in a very nice house. Um, I had spent many years in this house making it mine and, you know, giving me a, a, a measly $200,000 to walk away. And, you know, in this economy, what do you do with $200,000? You can't buy another house. So my answer was no. And that was really the only offer I got from the government. And so I have been spending, you know, since 17 looking for something else. And I've gone through all the products and I found a, 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 a new product that's from Germany. And they, uh, and it, and it is a uh, this temporary aluminum barrier um, that can be installed by two people in a three or four hours where sandbags, same volume, same size, would take you three weeks to four weeks and it would be a dozen people. So, you know, this is where I am now is I have found myself uh, some protection. Did you know you were in a high-risk area before the floods happened? Well, obviously, I knew the river flooded, but between myself and the river, I always had a ten-foot wall, and it and you know, and for twenty-seven years up to two thousand seventeen, it never got past that wall. And obviously, when I bought the house, nobody mentioned anything about a flood zone. Didn't even think about it. But the the, the mortgage company, the city, didn't say anything. And you know, the only thing I had to go by was this you know, the history and knowing that, you know, there had been a flood in decades, that nothing had flooded in decades and decades, and it was only a mechanical error that caused that flood back in 1976. So you've got the, this expensive aluminum barrier now that you can use. Do you ever worry that, that because we know that climate change is contributing to the unstable weather and, and more flooding, do you ever worry about the future of your house anyway, despite this barrier? No, I can't. I can't afford. To, I can't afford the stress of thinking that, thinking that way. And that's why I went with this barrier. This barrier, if the water goes above this barrier, gets higher than this barrier, it won't be just myself that gets flooded. It will be half a Gatineau. It'll be good portions of Ottawa that would be devastated. My aluminum barrier is, is is like an insurance policy, right? And. Uh, I'm happy to live in my house. I, I look out my backyard now. I see a garden. I see the river. I'm going to go fishing probably next week, uh, later on today. Uh, and maybe go down to Parliament Hill and drive by just because I can. Thomas Little, I thank you very much for your time. Oh, no problem. Thomas Little continues to live in his home along the banks of the Gatineau River with his new $44,000 aluminum barrier. His story isn't unique to Gatineau. 80% of Canadian cities are built on floodplains. But figuring out if you're affected, 
that's not so easy. With temperatures on the rise and extreme weather becoming more common, floods are expected to become more intense, more frequent, and unfortunately, more record-breaking. That's where Jason Thistlethwaite comes in, urging change from the very top. He's an associate professor at the University of Waterloo who has studied these very issues. Hello, Jason. Good morning. Tell me how vulnerable Canadians are to flooding. Flooding is Canada's most common and costly hazard. Uh, 80% of Canadian cities are actually built on floodplains. Um, we have historically valued living by water, uh, not only for its aesthetics, but also for uh, commercial reasons, uh, economic access. Uh, we also have a longest coastline in the world in Canada. So we have substantial population um, living along coastlines, which leaves them exposed to high flood risk. So combination of uh, a lot of people, a lot of property, uh, living in high-risk areas means that Canadians are quite vulnerable to flooding. Do, how many Canadians do you think um, might be living on a floodplain and have no idea that they are? We have asked Canadians this question and found that only 6% were able to correctly identify that they were in fact living in a high-risk flood area. So we have a very low awareness of flood risk in Canada, uh, which is quite problematic. In Canada, we do not have widely publicly available maps uh, designed for individuals to gain an appreciation uh, of their flood risk. Uh, maps are old. Uh, they can be very confusing. Uh, they tend to be drawn for other audiences like engineers and, and not the, your average homeowner. And most of them fail to meet sort of the, the basic criteria of, of what makes a good map, which is um, really a, an easy to understand, clear picture of your exposure to flood risk. Well, so how does a person make a decision about buying a home if they don't have the information? This is another gap in Canada and some other jurisdictions. You are informed at the point of sale whether your property is exposed. There is some uh, notification in places like the United Kingdom, uh, but here we do not. Uh, so really what it comes down to is you becoming your own advocate. Uh, and it shouldn't, it shouldn't be that way. The, the burden of you understanding the exposure of where you, your property or your investment or your retirement to flood risk uh, shouldn't be on you. Uh, you know, it should be governments that, that put resources into to making this happen. Uh, like it is done elsewhere. So you have to become your own advocate. Best bet is to contact your insurance company and see if they have any reading on the exposure to flood risk. Uh, and then secondarily, uh, you're going to have to pester your local government um, or watershed management organization, whatever that may be, and see if you can get the mapping data yourself if it's not available. The, uh, the other big piece of this puzzle is insurance. And how has insurance changed to deal with flooding? So insurance in Canada historically had only covered damage from basement flooding. So when water comes back through your sewer system and into your basement. After the big floods in 2013, uh, the industry started to expand coverage. Uh, it was very confusing for people. People didn't know whether they were covered for when uh, water would uh, come up from a river or a coastline and so on. Uh, and it led to a lot of ambiguity and frustration. So uh, in 2016, insurance companies started introducing what they call overland flood insurance. And this is a product that covers damage caused by river water coming in from either a river or as opposed to through your uh, stormwater system. Uh, this coverage is, is now available in Canada, um, but it is not available, available for those who need it most. 
because in our high risk areas, it's either companies aren't willing to sell it uh, or it's cost prohibitive. It's too, too expensive for people to afford. Um, so it's, it's not really doing the, the lifting we want needed to do. Do you know why Canada seems to be so far behind other countries? A lack of political will is, is really getting down to the heart of it, right? Um, other countries do this. They prioritize it. They put a lot of resources towards it. It just doesn't seem to be something that, that is, is taken as seriously as it should in Canada. A part of that is the fragmented nature by, uh, by the way it's governed. So each province is actually responsible for flood risk management. Um, and because of that, what often ends up happening is that when there is a significant flood, that can that money they lose can be bailed out by the federal government who will offer disaster assistance. So it creates what is known as a moral hazard where uh, provinces and local governments don't really have incentives to um, you know, limit developments in high-risk areas or uh, you know, conduct managed retreats and, and move people out of harm's way because they know that the federal government will be there in the end to bail them out of, of that poor decision-making. So uh, it, it's a combination of, of we, need this, we need this on the agenda, we need, we need leadership in, in this area, um, and we need it to come from you know, largely the federal government. This is, this is sort of the government that's been missing in action for the most part when it comes to managing flood risk in Canada. Now, the federal government is pledging to complete flood maps in Canada and create a new insurance program to help high-risk homeowners. Will that help? This is certainly the most we've seen the federal government do in terms of an active role in flood risk management. And yes, just, just the, the resources put into understanding these programs and understanding the scale of the problem should hopefully help uh, you know, manage the burden. Certainly a public insurance option in high-risk areas, you know, that will um, help people uh, you know, financially manage their uh, own exposure to flood risk. And critically, yes, they've committed uh, $150 million to what they say is complete flood maps in Canada. I'm not sure what that means or what that looks like. There are good ways of doing this and bad ways of doing this. Um, but at any, re- any resources towards this is, is, is better than where we were. And again, they've, they've committed to a relocation program, which, which I actually think is the most promising tool. Uh, because again, it's really the, the 5 to 10% highest risk uh, people and property that we need to deal with. So if, you, if there's some money hanging around out there for provinces to use to start getting people out of these uh, high exposed areas, we can actually, the, you know, the return on investment for any spending before a flood um, is anywhere from, uh, you spend a dollar, you get anywhere between six and 11 back. Uh, so it, it's a very good investment spending the money before the flood as opposed to scrambling around to fix the damage afterwards. Let's get down to the level of the cities and towns then. How prepared are they to deal with flooding in terms of the infrastructure? Certainly um, among local governments, flood risk and climate change are significant priorities. Uh, And that's because they are the most exposed, but have the least amount of resources to be able to manage that risk. So municipalities have a very narrow way of generating revenue and it comes through property taxes. Um, What this does actually though, is it creates an incentive to develop in high risk areas. Uh, along riverways and, and uh, along shorelines because these properties are going to be valuable, meaning the property taxes uh, will be quite high. So, um, but municipalities know that when the, the, the effects of extreme weather climate change are local. So for the most part, what they're doing right now is going through a series of plans. They're, they're trying to figure out uh, what are the best strategies they can do as a city to try and reduce that risk. And there are certainly some good ideas out there. But they're very resource constrained. It's very difficult for local governments to, to do the types of flood protection, uh, um, risk mitigation needed 
uh, to, to really solve this problem. When they have structural defenses, how adequate are they? So structural defenses um, are, are somewhat problematic increasingly because they're nearing the end of their lifespan uh, for the most part in Canada. We had sort of the golden age of structural defenses in the 1950s and 1960s when the federal government was a bit more active in funding these types of measures. Um, and so they, they do exist, uh, and you know you can find them. You know, walk walk around waterways in, in your local community and see some uh, berms and and drainage ditches and these types of things. Um, but they're very expensive to maintain, and that's on the municipality. And they do not account for things like climate change, so they cannot offer absolute protection. Uh, and we've seen them in the past fail. Right now, and you touched on this already, but it it is one thing to prevent new development on a floodplain. It's another problem when the people are actually already living there. And uh, in Quebec, the government is offering to buy people out of their homes in flood zones for up to $200,000. I'm wondering what you think of that approach. I'll get used to it um, because this is something that we're going to start seeing much more of in Canada. Uh, Taxpayers are starting to to see what's going on here, and they simply aren't willing to continue paying to rebuild in high-risk flood areas. Uh, So the solution is that you... Try and give people the option of leaving or relocating to a, a safer location. Um, Quebec is starting this. Uh, there are programs under under discussion in Grand Forks, British Columbia. There are programs in uh, New Brunswick, and the federal government, as a part of its previous budget, had said that it's thinking about putting some funding together for a relo- re- relocation program. Um, these strategies are by far the best forms of risk mitigation because you take exposure of people and property to the water, and you bring it to zero by moving them to safer locations. So uh, I think we're going to see a lot more of, of these types of programs. Right. I was going to ask you, because you, you mentioned Grand Forks there, that they've embarked on this strategy, but the CBC spoken to people there who weren't, who weren't included in the plan to move, some who were, some who felt pressured to agree to sell. And so the question becomes, how difficult is it to deal with this idea of managing a retreat after the flood has happened? Well, you... you You've nailed a key problem here in that the programs are so reactive. Uh, they should be around all the time so that residents, first of all, are informed they live in a high-risk flood area and always are uh, you know, made aware of the option they could accept a buyout. Um, you know, ideally, people are adequately compensated, so that gives them the incentive to consider moving. So you know, the, the value of the property should be pre-flood value as opposed to after the flood when they're substantially depreciated. And you got to give people a fair deal. I mean, this is this is um, this is not on them. I mean, they were unaware that they were buying property in a high risk area. Um, there was no maps available for them to inform that decision. And so I think they need to be um, these programs need to be well compensated, well resources, well resourced, and equitable. So flooding's not going away, Jason. What is at stake for us as Canadians if we don't do a better job of having a comprehensive strategy on mitigating floods before they happen? Significant disruption to the economy. You know, that's really what, what the brass tax of, of flooding is, right? And particularly in the context of climate change, we have a lot of critical infrastructure. We have a lot of people um, who live in high-risk areas. And when these events happen, you know, we, we see the images on our on TV screens and, and we're compassionate and empathetic. Um, but we're going to start to see a lot more of that. And it's going to start happening in areas with significant population. We need in Canada to have a much stronger public policy response to climate change risk and to flood risk. And it'll be interesting to see what happens with flooding because it is sort of the, the proxy for our ability to deal with uh, more dangerous future climates. Thank you for this. Thanks so much for the opportunity, Laura.
Jason Thistlethwaite studies the economic effects of climate change and extreme weather at the University of... Paper or plastic? Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on, which one's better? I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer what's better. Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts. Waterloo. Now, some steps are being taken to better prepare for flooding here. Last year, the federal government pledged to complete all flood maps in Canada so that homeowners aren't left in the dark. One of our producers, Lisa Johnson, joins me with more. Hi, Lisa. Hi, Laura. So what does one of these flood maps actually look like? Well, it totally depends where you live, and it's a complete patchwork across Canada. So some places do have the kind of map you might imagine being possible, so something that's online and searchable, and you plug in an address and find out the risk. Um, so Calgary is one place that has that. And of course, devastating flooding there in 2013. But now you can go online, find a color-coded map where you can search an address and see the flood risk. And what's really useful about the way that they lay that out is um, how they communicate it. So you know how you often hear a year number attached to floods, like a, a one in 100 year flood? Yeah, I've always wondered what that actually means. Does that mean a flood once every 100 years? Yeah, it sounds like a schedule and it is definitely not. It is a probability. And I think that confuses a lot of people. So a one in 100 year flood means that there is a 1% chance of flooding in any given year. In Calgary, that is a bunch of downtown, and you can just look at that map and see purple and blue zones and know that. It also lays out, which I think is really interesting, that that 1% chance in any given year over the life of an average mortgage means that there's a 22% chance the place will flood over that timeline. And to me, that is really eye-opening. That is a much different way of looking at it. It gives you a much sharper idea of the risk you're facing. Yeah. So... Calgary sounds like it's got something going on that sounds more informative for people. Is that replicated in other parts of the country? You can see something like that other places. Like I'm living in a part of the interior of BC right now that you do have like a public searchable map that you can find addresses and, and the one in 200 year flood risk. Uh, other places might have nothing. Uh, I also found a bunch of scan topographical maps from like the 1980s and 1990s. Which at first I was sort of surprised about that timeline. A, these are not searchable maps. I find them hard to read. And that's a, you know, a long time ago. But it turns out those dates go back to when there actually was a federal provincial mapping program for flood hazards. But that program ended in 1998. Well, so what are the governments doing now? What, what's Ottawa doing? Well, it has pledged last year to uh, complete and update all flood maps in Canada. So what that means is like compiling what's out there, figuring out how to make it consistent and shareable, and then also working with the banks and the insurers who already have more information than most homeowners do about the risk. Craig Stewart at the Insurance Bureau of Canada has been urging the government to do that. And he says right now, people looking online for themselves might actually get wrong information. You may buy a home uh, based on municipal information, uh, thinking it's low risk, but then find out that your bank or insurer views it as high risk. Um, uh, which obviously uh, would make you unhappy. Um, so it, it's up to us, frankly, uh, in the private sector and with governments 
to get our act together and, and to start sharing information uh, much more actively than we're doing right now. Oh, pity the poor homeowner then who gets in that situation and they find out that their yeah. home is suddenly at risk. What do they do about it? Well, that's the scary thing. And you might not be able to get insurance at that point. Stuart confirmed that the highest risk properties, so they look at that as the category of a one in 20 year flood risk, 5% chance in any given year, a property that's going to flood repeatedly. Those places will not be able to get insurance. They'd either have to possibly make changes to protect the property better or consider leaving. But even the next category, so the one in 100 year flood zone, he said people there wouldn't be able to get affordable private insurance by and large either. And those are the two categories that are sort of unprotected now and the federal government is looking at doing something about. Just last week in the economic and fiscal update, Public Safety Canada got money for a task force to look at both those issues. So options for both, quote, a national high risk flood insurance program and a national action plan for potential relocation. And that would be for those highest risk places. Well, that's just timely happening just last week, but it is a task force. So how long is it actually going to take? Yeah, I asked the government that. We did not get an answer. Um, but, you know, back in the spring, there was speculation that just the mapping efforts could take 10 years or more. But now Craig Stewart is optimistic it's going to happen faster. Federal civil servants have been working through uh, the pandemic, sort of all hands on deck to get this out the door in the next two to three years uh, to make sure that Canadians are much better protected from flooding. Now, just to, I, I wonder, if, Lisa, if you might give listeners a sense of, of just um, how pressing a need this is. And that is because of your own personal experience just, just in the <laughs> last few months. Yeah. So this spring, um, I'm living along a river in a rental property. And, and when we rented it, I noticed, oh, it seems pretty flat. It seems pretty close to the water, you know, nice for a swim. But I wonder about flood risk. And I sort of, you know, naively tucked that thought away thinking, well, I guess if there's, if it's a pretty recently built house, it must be safe. And then in the spring, um, indeed, you know, the really heavy rainfall, really fast snow melt, just a classic spring flooding situation. The water came up on the lawn. We watched the river turn brown. And by 11 that night, we had an evacuation order and we were moving like everything valuable up out of the basement and trying to decide whether to wake up the kids. So in our case, it was it was no big deal. Um, the flood didn't come into the house, and uh, and we were safe. But very eye opening for me on sort of how fast that can happen, even where you might not know it's going to. Yeah, wow. And 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 not because of this, but you're actually moving out of the floodplain. That's right. Safer ground. <laughs> Lisa, thanks for this. Thank you, Laura. Lisa Johnson is a producer with What on Earth. Okay, the fact is, no matter how good your maps are, as sea levels rise, some homes just will not be livable anymore. A.R. Siders says we need to talk now about a strategic and managed retreat from coastlines and other vulnerable areas. She studies climate adaptation at the University of Delaware's Disaster Research Centre. Hi, A.R. Hello. What does the phrase managed retreat mean on the ground for someone who lives in a vulnerable area? Managed retreat means taking a purposeful look at where we have people living and we have infrastructure that's been built in risky places. And managed retreat is moving people or infrastructure, buildings, assets, houses out of those risk-prone areas. So deciding not to live 
right next to the volcano, the flood waters, the coast, or any other hazard. So you started your work on this around the same time as Hurricane Sandy hit New York in 2012. I'm wondering, was it something about that flooding that in, and its aftermath that inspired you? I was there and I saw the aftermath with all of the sand built up around people's homes. What was that like for you? Oh, it was, it was devastating. And uh, I, so I had just started work at the Sabin Center for Climate Change Law at Columbia University in New York City just before Hurricane Sandy hit. Uh, so it was one of my first experiences in New York City was seeing the devastation of, of Sandy and how people and communities responded to it. And in the aftermath, there were a lot of conversations about how do we build back, but there weren't as many conversations about should we build back or where should we build back? And that seemed like a really important part of the conversation. To, to think about both of those aspects. Well, I'm wondering what, what kind of resistance did you hear to that idea of not rebuilding? What was, what was the reason? At that time in 2012, I think people really weren't as aware of managed retreat as a strategy. So I heard a lot of people say, this is un-American, maybe it's illegal, that this isn't something we do in the United States. Uh, and it is, and it's something the United States has done for decades, actually, even before Sandy, but we weren't talking about and we weren't aware of. And so a lot of my work has been trying to just get people to be aware of this as an option. I guess when you say it's not American, people were, were saying this, that we, we would feel like a failure? Yeah, you see instead, right, the build back stronger or New Jersey strong right in New Jersey right after Hurricane Sandy in New York. We had the mayor say, you know, we'll never abandon the waterfront, right, that we needed to to be strong and we needed to fight against the ocean. And of course, if you pause and you think about that for a moment, you think we're fighting the ocean. Like maybe that's not maybe that's not the right way to think about this, right? Maybe mm. that's not the fight we want to choose. We, we've actually seen some of that pushback here in Canada too. I'm wondering how you make the case for managed retreat despite that kind of resistance. Well, one of the first things I think about is that when people live in risky areas, they're at risk. And if we don't give them an option to get out of that risk-prone areas, then we're putting their lives at risk, we're putting their families at risk, we're putting their their financial assets, their financial well-being in their house, all of their memories, all their belongings, everything is at risk. So why wouldn't we take every single opportunity and look at all possible options to make people safer, even if that involves some uncomfortable conversations about where we live and where we rebuild? Well, we recently had a situation here in our province where, where the, that conversation was started and then abruptly cut off um, in a beachside community in, in Surrey here in British Columbia where there was discussion from the city about managed retreat and buying out homes. And it was actually something thought of as being far off in the future. But the backlash came in right away and now it is completely off the table. What do you think of that? Yeah, unfortunately, that is all too common of a story. Uh, we see governments who suggest this as an idea, even just put it on the table, right? Here's something we can talk about it. And I think there's an incredible amount of backlash because people have very strong ties to where we live. We live where we do for a variety of reasons, and we want to control that. We want personal control. I think people become afraid that the government is going to force them out, that this is something they're going to be required to do. Uh, and at least in the U.S., the relocation is technically voluntary. Uh, it's an offer to purchase the house. It's a conversation we want to have, not this isn't eminent domain, this isn't condemnation, it's not the government coming in and saying you must leave. It's would you like to leave and can we help you financially if you want to leave. Uh, and I think 
that's hard to convey in a nuanced way and especially hard to convey right after disaster when people are already emotionally overwhelmed. So yeah, you see a lot of this political backlash uh, and it's, it's not uncommon, but we also see a lot of change. Like that's happening. Uh, we're having more conversations recently than we have been in the past. So I think people are starting to understand that these conversations at least need to happen, uh, that they can't have this kind of political backlash forever. How important are these these options for retreat for people who have been lived through a, lo- a flood and want to leave? I think they're critical. Uh, after major floods, after especially in the United States, right, we deal with a lot of hurricanes, and so we see this major devastation. Uh, I know Canada has has major flooding issues as well. Um, you know, after people have gone through that kind of trauma, maybe they've lost loved ones or they've lost neighbors, they've lost their personal belongings, right? They've had all of the psychological stress and the trauma of dealing with this disaster. Some people just don't want to go through that again, but they may not be financially able to leave, or they may think that it's irresponsible to leave because if they sell their house to a new family, they're just putting that new family at risk. But the option you're talking about involves government stepping in to, to supply the bios, right? It does. And this is because if you think about it, I mean, you know, anyone who owns a home, think about just walking away from it, right? Think about not not getting any return on the investment you've put in, any of the down payment you put in, right? Your mortgage, like what would that do to your finances? And some people make this choice anyway. After uh, Hurricane Katrina, after major hurricanes, we see people who just leave their homes and they just never return. And that has to be just financially devastating. So the government stepping in and offering to purchase the home, purchase the land and help with the relocation is a way to give people an option who may not financially be able to do this otherwise. Uh, and, but, and that's why government intervention is important. Right. But but to me, buying waterfront property, government stepping up and buying those properties, that could be really expensive. I'm wondering how it compares to other options like using dikes or, or walls or some kind of flood abatement. Yeah, it is expensive. And part of it is the difference between an upfront one-time payment or long-term payments over time. Uh, In the United States, the National Institute of Building Sciences actually put out a report last year that looked at the U.S. and said the U.S., if they spent $180 billion to move a million houses out of the floodplain, they would save about $1.6 trillion over the next century. According to their study, retreat is actually the most cost-effective adaptation option. They estimate that it saves about $6 for every dollar spent on retreat, whereas walls, dikes, elevation, they save about $2 for every dollar spent. So they're still very cost effective, but not as cost effective as managed retreat. Are there any examples of managed retreat that actually has been done well? (laughs) This is a really difficult question because trying to get people to agree on what it means to do managed retreat well is very difficult. So there are lots of examples of places that have done some parts of retreat well and some parts not very well. Um, The example I think about here is uh, Grand Forks, North Dakota. In the 90s, they had major river flooding uh, and they had a large buyout to buy out about 800 homes along the river. They turned the land into a large green park So it helped revitalize the downtown. They partnered with a developer to build new housing on another safer part of town. This all sounds very successful. But on the flip side of that, the people who were were moving, they did not want to move. And they felt that this process was very problematic, so much so that they actually sued the government. Uh, They filed a class action lawsuit against them because of this. 
Uh, and they ended up not being able to afford moving into the new housing because it had been built as new housing and it was more expensive. So on the one hand, very successful because lots of people were moved out of the floodplain. They're no longer at risk. And there's this great green space. On the other side, not successful at all because these people felt that they hadn't been given a voice and a fair treatment in the process. And I was just going to ask you, that seems like a problem of communication. Very much so. And I think a lot of problems about Major Treat uh, come down to communication issues, even what we call it. I mean, should we call it retreat? (laughs) Should we call it managed retreat? always starts interesting conversations. People use all different kinds of phrases for this instead. Um, How do we communicate it to the homeowner to make it clear that this should be voluntary or is it voluntary? Uh, There's lots of communication hurdles here. And I think people are still trying to figure out the best way to engage in those communications. You've also talked about issues of equity where coastlines have both these really expensive homes and also very vulnerable populations. How do you make sure a program like this is fair? This is a huge challenge, Uh, big enough challenge that I know of at least two academic conferences that are being organized on this exact topic because we don't know how to answer it yet. Um, It's a major concern because the coasts, as you can imagine, are some people who live on the coast are very wealthy and these are their very expensive beachfront vacation homes. And some people who live on the coast are Uh, living in lower income communities because their jobs are right on the water or because historically those are the only homes they could afford were in these risky areas. And so when you have a coastline like this, it can be very difficult to have one policy that is fair for both of those types of communities. And one of the things I think that a lot of academics are starting to address, and it's coming right on the heels of a lot of the racial inequity and the anti-racism conversations in the U.S. is how you can't treat two communities the same if they have very different histories and very different equity needs. So in some ways, we might need programs that are better tailored to meet the specific needs of communities rather than having one program that we try to apply to every single community the same way. And the problems are just going to get more intense because the sea level is already rising, but the the predictions are now for far worse. Um, How do you get people to talk and think now about a problem that, to their minds, is a long way off in the future? Yeah, so... That was a big sigh. (laughs) Yeah, sorry. (laughs) It's a a huge challenge. Uh, Well, so many things about this are challenging. I think the, the reasons we have to engage in them right now are, are twofold. One is that people are at risk right now. There, there are people who, people die in floods. <laughs> and as you say, it'll only get worse in the future. The other reason is that we expect that in the future, this might be needed by more people. So anyone who listens to this and thinks, well, I'm not moving, that's fine. Maybe you won't, but maybe the person who moves in after you will, or maybe in 30 years, you'll change your mind, right? People do change their minds occasionally. Uh, and When that happens, if we have to do this at larger scales and we have to do this more often in the future, we need to know how. We need to know how to do this at larger scales. We need to know how to address the equity problems. We need to know how to handle the financing problems. We need to think about where the new housing is going to be. And all of that takes time. And so if we want a solution to be ready in the future, we have to start preparing for it now. So we have to have these conversations because we have to get ready for that eventuality. Let's take this then a step further. You've also talked about a full retreat from private ownership of waterfront (laughs) land and creating a national seashore in the United States. Tell me about that vision and and what reaction you get when you talk to people about it. 
Yeah, uh, Rosetta Elkin is a landscape architect at Harvard at the uh, Graduate School of Design, and she came up with the phrase, the national uh, seashore. And this idea is, you know, just try to imagine the coast. And if you imagine nobody living on the coast, imagine, I don't know, 200 meters of just open space, right? I try to sell it to people as imagine you could walk from Maine to Texas on the beach. Uh, and of course, I get a lot of pushback, but the pushback I always get is how will we do it? We don't want people to move away from the coast just because they're afraid and they're fleeing from the water. We want them to be able to see moving as part of working towards something amazing. You know, it's using the uh, President Kennedy example of we're going to put a man on the moon by the end of the decade. And that means we're going to, you know, how are we going to do that? Well, I don't know, but we're going to have a decade to figure it out. But isn't that an amazing vision that we should work towards? And similarly, what is the coast you want to work towards? You know, over the next 20 years, what do you want your coasts, your riverfronts, your waterfronts to look like? Do you want them to be concrete walls? Do you want them to be houses on 20 foot stilts? Or do you want lots of open space where everyone can access it? That's the idea, at least. Is can we give people a unifying vision that they can and will want to work towards, to be excited about? Because adaptation really should be optimistic and exciting, right? It's, it's about building something new and something better, not just reacting out of fear. I'm curious to know whether whether you uh, own a home on the waterfront or if you ever have. <laughs> I do not. Uh, I grew up on Lake Superior, but up on the hill away from the water. <laughs> okay. uh, and now I live uh, right in the coastal, in one of the flattest coastal states in the U.S., but I do not live in the floodplain. And I was very sure with our real estate agent that we were not buying anything in the floodplain. Uh, okay. you know, but, but I think that's one reason I think about it this way is because I grew up on Lake Superior. I grew up I consider myself to have grown up very much on the water, but I didn't live on the water, right? There was public beach, there were public access points. There was, there were always ways to engage with the water and to be on the water and to be next to the water that didn't involve us living on the water and living at risk. And I hope that that's a, a mindset shift we could have in terms of how do we live with the water in ways that don't require us to put our houses on the water. <laughs> right? There are other ways to engage with it. All right. Uh, thank you very much for the conversation. It's been very interesting. <laughs> thank you very much. Appreciate it. A.R. Siders. She doesn't live anywhere near a waterfront in Delaware. She's an assistant professor studying climate change adaptation. Now, we'd love to hear from you about this. Have you been hit by a flood? Have you taken a buyout for your property? Let us know. Email us earth at cbc.ca. And that is it for us this week. Thanks to our What on Earth team, associate producer Cameron Perrier, digital producer Althea Manassen, and producer Lisa Johnson. Our technician this week was Matthias Wolfson with help from Ross Bragg. Manisha Janakiram is our senior producer. I'm Laura Lynch. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.